The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Well, here we are, December 29th. It's the first Sunday after Christmas, and I think if we're honest, this can be a Sunday uh, that we don't know what to do with. Uh, because we live in a culture where December 25th marks the end of Christmas. The gifts have been bought and opened, the feasts have been cooked and eaten, and many of us are absolutely exhausted because we've been resting with our extended families. Now, we may feel the need to uh, quickly turn our attention to the new year, to New Year's Eve, to the, the new year and the new us. Even this weekend, I've seen this message in stores and in ads. It's time to put up the black and gold. It's time to start looking ahead. It's time to start thinking through your goals and, and what things are you going to change The Christmas decorations are coming down, and we're quickly moving on to the new year. Well, while this may be hope happening in our culture around us, um, if it's okay with you, not that you really have a choice, but if it's okay with you, I'd like for us this morning to continue to reflect on Christmas, to continue to reflect on on Christmas. Uh, recently, there was an Anglican priest that wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and she titled it, Want to Get into the Christmas Spirit? Face the Darkness. She writes this. She goes, in the church calendar, every period of celebration is preceded by a time of preparation. Every period of celebration is preceded by a time of of preparation. Historically, Advent is a way to prepare our hearts, our minds, and our souls for Christmas. She writes, for Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, that the light has come into the darkness, and as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. You see, Advent is a season where we're called to stare into the darkness. It's a season of fasting. It's a season of preparation. Maybe you've never thought of it like this before, but, but Advent is really meant to be similar to Lent in some ways. Uh, it's a season of preparing our hearts. It's a season of, of wrestling with the reality that we live in a world that is filled with darkness. During the season of Lent, we don't put the flowers on the cross. We don't do that yet. But we do on Easter. The the season of Lent is meant to give way to the celebration and the light of Easter. Well, Advent's meant to do the same thing. It's meant to be a preparation for Christmas. For the celebration of Christmas. Christmas, the staring into the darkness is meant to be met with the light, the celebration 
the joy of Christmas. Of Christmas. So, I don't want to quickly move on from the Christmas celebration, but rather I want us to reflect and rejoice in the reality that the cry of, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that cry of Advent is met in the answer that Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. So today, I want us to look together at the events following the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 2, specifically verses 13 through 15. Um, I, I think many times as we hurry away from the Christmas season into the new year, that these verses are forgotten or they're quickly passed over. And I think that's to be lamented because there is much in these, uh, in these passages for us to ponder, for us to think through as we celebrate and continue to celebrate this morning, Christmas. All right, so um, the passage that uh, was read today it uh, started in chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13 of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there if you haven't already. Matthew writes, Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Let's stop there for a second. Uh, Who departed? I imagine many of us know the wise men, the magi. In uh, chapter 2, 1 through 12, Matthew tells this story, a story that I imagine many of us are familiar with, the story of the magi's visit to Jesus to give homage to one that they see born king of the Jews. It, It really sets the passage or excuse me, sets the context for our passage today. And so while we're familiar with it, I'd like to have a quick refresher for us. Uh, So first, a a word about these wise men, or magi. Who were these people? Well, the Greek word that uh, we translate, it's translated Bibles in uh, in your Bibles, wise man, uh, or Magi, uh, was originally the title of a Persian priestly caste who played an important role in advising the king. Uh, but by the time of Christ, uh, it eventually came to be applied more widely to speak of learned men and priests who specialized in astrology and the interpretation of dreams, and in many cases the magical arts. And so Matthew tells us that these magi uh, have come from the east and they believe a rising star in the Westland has heralded a royal birth, one born king of the Jews. So naturally, these learned men go uh, where one would expect a king to be born. Where is that? The capital. And that's where they encounter our anti-hero, if you will, or the villain 
in the story, King Herod. King Herod. Uh, the Idumean Herod the Great uh, was really a puppet king for Rome. Uh, his father was the head of the kind of police force that kept things in order for Rome. And Herod the Great not only took over for his father, but was named king of Judea in, uh, by Rome. He was their kind of first major client king uh, in Israel after Israel's subjection to Rome. And at this time, at the time of Jesus' birth, he's reaching the end of his reign. But he had built a reputation, not a good one. He was known for his paranoia. He was known for his jealousy. Uh, This paranoia and jealousy would lead him to have his wife and two of his sons executed. He was a vicious man. And although Rome saw him as a Jew, because of his ancestry, the Jews never accepted him as a real king. And Herod had no ancestral right to the throne. Uh, Like I said, he was a puppet king for Rome. So, why is that important? Well, because this made him very vulnerable to someone born as king from the traditional line of David. Someone born as king. And so, for Herod, when the Magi come to him and and they announce that they're looking for one born king of the Jews, this is a direct threat. And the man who murdered his wife and two of his children is not going to hesitate. He's willing to do whatever it takes, even if that means killing an innocent child. So next, the the Magi are, are told that The Scriptures reveal that a baby's uh, to be born in Bethlehem. The chief scribes reveal this to them. And we don't know uh, how many wise men there were. Maybe there were three. Maybe there were 30. Uh, We get three wise men because there were three gifts. But maybe there were four and one of them just forgot it. You know, got halfway to Jerusalem. You're not turning back at that point. Um, real, that's really going to stay with him. But uh, we don't know. We don't know if there were three or there were 30. Um, but Herod, with these wise men, makes a plan to protect his reign. He tells them that when they find the baby, uh, let him know so he too can come and worship him, a.k.a. kill him. The story ends, as we all know, with The star lighting the Magi's way as they go to Bethlehem, the very birthplace of the Messiah, and after giving homage, after giving gifts and falling down at the main uh, baby Jesus, they take a different route home because they were warned in a dream, presumably by an angel, to not go back to Herod. Now, can I make a, a few brief comments on this story? This story that we all know so well. Um, sometimes when this passage is, is preached, the emphasis tends to be on the faith of the wise men. 
either the faith of the wise men in coming or the gifts that they bring to Christ. Uh, Then the immediate application for the congregation as the sermon is preached is, what gifts will you bring to Jesus? Normally talk about things like talents, etc. Will you choose to worship him no matter the cost? And while I definitely think that this is something worthy of reflection, I think this is something worthy of meditation as we think through the passage, I also think there might be something bigger going on in the visit of the Magi. Well, what's that? What's that bigger thing that's going on? Well, think about it. The Magi are Gentiles who come from afar to pay homage to the Messianic king of the Jews. In this way, they fulfill all of these Old Testament images and uh, prophecies that we see with Solomon, that we see in the Psalms, that we see in Isaiah, that we see even to Abraham. Uh, In 1 Kings, uh, we see the Gentile queen of Sheba give gold, spices, precious stones to Solomon, the son of David, the rightful king of Israel. In Psalm 72, we see the leadership of distant lands bring gifts to the true ruler of Israel. In Isaiah 60, there's this day that's prophesied about. It's this day where the nations flood into Zion. And the message in Isaiah 60 is when the nations are blessed and brought to Zion by the Messiah, they will rejoice and bring gifts to the true and final king. Isaiah says, nations will come to your light. The riches of nations will come. Matthew wants us to see all these Old Testament images, all these Old Testament prophecies about the nations flooding in and worshiping Yahweh are being fulfilled as these magi bow before baby Jesus. But there's also something more going on. This is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. His promise was that the Jewish people would be a source of what to the world? A source of blessing. And here we see God sovereignly guide these magi using their own discipline to come to a place where they not only bring gifts, but receive a gift of far more worth, value, and blessing. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. God with us. God is blessing the nation's through the baby Jesus. They're coming to bow and to offer praise and worship. This this also points forward to a day when those that are least likely bow before King Jesus. The Magi uh, would not have been figures that were highly regarded by the Jewish people. These are people that you would least likely to expect to come and bow down before Jesus. These are men who practiced magic, which was taboo in the Jewish world. And here they are, bowing before this baby. And so this scene in in Matthew 2, it really sets us up for the battle that's continuing to happen and is going to happen between Herod and his forces, 
and Jesus with his parents. It's a battle, and, and the question is, who is the true king? Who is the true king? All right, so look, let's look at our text again for today, now that we have that in mind. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. To destroy him. In 2014, a band called the Oh Hellos put out a folk Christmas album called the Oh Hellos Family Christmas Album. Original name. The album is uh, this folk album that's comprised of four movements or four songs. The first track on the album is titled Rejoice, Rejoice. And it's their version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it begins and the vibe is slow and somber, tense. They're singing very quietly. It's a great arrangement for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is a cry for deliverance and rescue. It's a cry of desperation. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, towards the end of the song, it takes this crazy dark turn. Musically, it's, it's loud and it's, it's haunting. Vocally, it moves from uh, these soft voices to this screaming vocally. It kind of has like a system of a down vibe. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Um, and the first time I heard it, it was just so shocking. I had no idea what was going on. And so I had to look up the lyrics, why this really dark, haunting entrance into this quaint little folk Christmas album. Or I looked up the words, and they say this, Herod the king in his raging, charged he hath this day, his men of might in his own sight, all children young to slay. All children young to slay. In our passage for today, we see the angel of the Lord warning Joseph in a dream that Herod will look for the baby Jesus in order to destroy him, and so the family must go to Egypt. When the Magi do not return to Herod, it sets him off. And in a rage, he decides that if they're not going to tell him which child to kill, then he's going to kill all the children in the city under two. And he does. He does. Now, to many, it may be surprising that the Oh Hellos would include this dark episode in human history on their family Christmas album. But, as the people of God, it should not be surprising to us. Because in all of its horror, in all of its un speakable evil, this is part of our Christmas story. This is part of our story 
Our Christmas story is about God's redemptive action in history and the forces of evil as they do anything in their power, no matter how horrifying, no matter how evil, no matter how unspeakable, to oppose it. In this Christmas story, evil is not ignored, it's not set aside for the season, but rather, just like our lives, it's very present, causing destruction, pain, and mourning. I'll never forget the last Body Life, Bill Kaler getting up and and sharing and, and reminding us that during the holidays, suicide rates increase. That the holidays are a very dark time for many people. This is the reality. And all the cheer and the presents and the meals is not enough to address the darkness. If you're looking for sentimentality this Christmas, I recommend you stick with Hallmark. Because you won't find any sentimentality in the Scripture story. Here we are faced with the power of evil in this world, but we are also shown the good news that God is more powerful. We are shown a God who's sovereignly working out His redemptive purposes in the midst of it all. While Herod seeks to defeat King Jesus, we see God's power and control through the protection of Jesus and his family. In this episode, as well with the rest of scriptures, we're not given a simple answer to the problem of the existence of this unspeakable evil. We're not given any simple answers. Job wasn't given a simple answer. Jesus does not give us a simple answer. But one thing is clear in this Christmas story. In the darkest moments such as this, God is sovereignly working out his redemptive purpose to rescue the whole creation from this kind of evil. This type of darkness says, God is removed. God is unconcerned. God does not care. But our Christmas story says something else. Our Christmas story says that God is working, that he is bringing about his redemptive purposes so that one day there will be a creation in which this evil is not known, in which this evil is not, is not present. That is a hope that can address the darkness of suicide. That is a hope that can address the darkness of depression and loneliness. That is a hope that comes from the church's Christmas story this season. The future is one of peace because Jesus reigns on the throne, not Herod. Because Jesus reigns on the throne, not Herod. But that's not all we see in our passage. Uh, We see something else. Uh, The last thing that I would like to point our attention to this morning In our passage, we not only see the power of God as the forces of evil rage against him, we not only see his redemptive work in the midst of this unspeakable evil, Matthew shows us something about the identity of Jesus in verse 15. His identity that I think is absolutely astonishing. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 together. Verse 14. And he, 
Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, My wife and I have started this Christmas tradition where each year we get a children's book for our future kids. No, we're not pregnant. I got to select the book this year, and I'm really thrilled with my selection. Uh, This year I got a children's book uh, titled Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. This is, of course, based on the 1563 Heidelberg Catechism, which is a Christian document that takes the form of a series of questions and answers to teach Christian belief and practice. I think our child is going to love it. (laughs) And sit quietly and ask probing questions about it. I can't wait. Well, in this story, uh, a young girl named Sophie is dealing with guilt because she has gotten into a fight with her sister and yelled at her parents. And as she's crying in her room, she's visited by the Heidelberg cat. At one point, Sophie says she's overwhelmed by the reality that she just can't be good all the time. No matter how hard she tries, she continues to mess up. The cat responds to her. Let me tell you a secret, Sophie. There's no one who can. Not your mom or your dad, your friends or your neighbors, and even your teacher, when no one can see, is surprisingly bad. Look around the street. Miss Gubbins is rude. The Macintosh children are always in fights. The pastor gets angry. The shopkeeper's proud, and the Joneses have horrible quarrels at night. The Bible tells stories of hundreds of people, and all of them disobey God, except one. So hope doesn't come from the good things we do. It comes as a gift from what Jesus has done. In the last part of verse 15, Matthew writes that the eventual return of Jesus from Egypt when Herod would die was to, quote, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Do you know what he's quoting there? Do you know what prophet he's quoting? He's quoting Hosea. Hosea 11.1. Now, this is interesting that he would quote this here. Why? Don't worry, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Hosea 11.1 is a reference to the Exodus. Okay? There Hosea is speaking for the Lord and is thinking back to the Exodus. He's remembering when Israel was just a little toddler of a nation and God delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Also in the Hosea passage, there's a lament because now in Hosea's time, because of Israel's disobedience, because of their rebellion, they're going to be led into exile. But like so many prophetic passages like this, it doesn't end with Israel in exile, but ends with God saying, because of my love for Israel, I will not leave them there. I will not leave them in 
that place. Now, the difficult question for you and I, for the reader, is this. How does Jesus fulfill Hosea 11.1? Because Hosea 11.1 is not a messianic prophecy. It's not this future prophetic word about the coming king. It's talking about Israel and their exodus. It's, it's not a messianic prophecy in the way Micah 5.2 is, where Micah 5.2 reveals that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem, right? Pretty straightforward. But Hosea 11.1 is not a prediction about a future coming king. So what's, what's going on here? Well, something beautiful is going on here. And that is that Matthew sees in the life of Jesus a parallel to the life of Israel as a nation. All right? Matthew sees in the life of Jesus a parallel to the life of Israel as a nation. Stay with me. He sees in Jesus' life a reenactment of Israel's story, an embodiment, if you will, of Israel's story. Well, think about it. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, if we start at the birth of Jesus, shortly after his birth, he was rushed away to safety to avoid the wrath of a jealous king who had ordered all the young boys to be killed. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Where else in the Bible does this happen? Ah, the Exodus, where Pharaoh fears the Hebrews, and so he orders that every baby boy be thrown into the Nile. But Moses was spared because his mother hid him in a basket in the river. Likewise, Jesus was spared Herod's decree because his mother hid him in Egypt. But it's not done yet. Following right on the heels of Jesus' exodus out of Egypt, we come to Matthew 3. What's going on in Matthew 3? Where, Well, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. Out of Egypt, through the waters. Does that sound familiar? Just like the Israelites left Egypt and then passed through the Red Sea, Jesus too leaves Egypt and passes through the waters in his baptism. But it continues. In Matthew 4, where does Jesus go after his baptism? He goes into where? The desert. Where he is tempted after fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, but he remains faithful. Where does Israel go after they pass through the waters of the Red Sea? into the desert where they do not remain faithful but wander for 40 years. Do you see what's happening? God rescued Israel out of Egypt so that they would be a light to the nations, so that they would be a blessing to the nations, so that they would remove and rid the world of evil and bring God's shalom and God's peace. But there's a problem. Israel continues to fail Over and over again, Israel does not become the solution to the problem. Israel becomes part of the problem. And they themselves need rescue. They themselves need delivering. As the Heidelberg cat would say, the Bible tells stories of hundreds of people, and all of them disobey God except one. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the one that came to be all that Israel was called to be that could not be. God sent his son to do himself what his people could not do for themselves. He was to do what they were powerless to do. 
They were unfaithful, but he will prove faithful. From his exodus to his baptism in the Jordan to his 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was identifying himself with his covenant people. And he will succeed where they could not. This is what the entire Old Testament, the entire story of Israel is pointing to. He is the climax. He is the goal. He is the new Israel. He is their savior. He is their deliverer. He is their king who identifies with them and has come to rescue them. Because they need rescue. They desperately need rescue. I'll close with this. In uh, the hymn, Rock of Ages, some of you may be familiar with this hymn, there's a beautiful verse that speaks to the state of humanity and our desperate need for rescue. Uh, The verse goes like this. Should my tears forever flow, should my zeal no languor know, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Save me from sin's guilt and sin's power. First, save me from sin's guilt. Uh, Recently, I was reading the sermons of the 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said this, and it stood with me as he was reflecting about uh, humanity's failure and, and, and really the continual failure of the church and even mature Christians. He says this, he says, we have something to hide. We have secrets, worries, thoughts, hopes, desires, passions, which no one else gets to know. We are sensitive when people get near those domains with their questions, with their prying. And now, against all rules of tact, the Bible speaks of the truth that in the end, we will appear before Christ with everything we are and were. And we all know, this is good, we all know that we could justify ourselves before any human court, but not before this one. Lord, who can justify themselves? Are, are you disillusioned and discouraged by your continued disobedience this morning? Are you troubled by your lack, lack of faith? Are you haunted by the mistakes of your past, even your present? Are you burdened by the pain that you have caused others? Would you come to Jesus? He was faithful where you were not where you are not. Jesus walked in obedience to the Father so you don't have to. Jesus succeeded where you failed and you belong to him. The one that you will stand before in judgment is your advocate and you are covered in his blood. He is the faithful one on your behalf. That is good news. Who will save us from sin's guilt? But also, who will save us from sin's power? For we We know that we are not powerful enough to remove the world of evil. Are you overwhelmed by the persistent evil in this world? Do you feel crushed by its presence, its continued presence? Do you feel helpless to do anything about it? 
hear this good news. God is more powerful than Herod. Herod's plot in vain, and then they die. God redeems their evil for his glory and our good. Whether it's the killing of innocent children in Bethlehem or the killing of an innocent man on the cross, God is not removed or unconcerned, but bringing new life and hope out of death. That is good news. He is our deliverer, the faithful one. So as we head into this new year, why don't we gaze back at Christmas? Instead of just focusing on the new you for 2020, why not take a moment to sit in Christmas, to sit in awe of the new Israel, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, our deliverer. Amen.